Blog Talk Radio. famous 
is known as the Jewish diaspora, about which Ben has been very articulate and has written several books about, uh, one of which is The Scattered Tribe, Traveling the Diaspora from Cuba to India to Tahiti and beyond. As I was uh, indicating, Ben has a distinguished career as a journalist in writing several books and uh, and uh, being a journalist overall and writing for Jewish newspapers, articles in Hadassah Magazine, Reform Judaism Magazine, and others. So it's really a pleasure and honor to have Ben on with us today. And one other thing before I invite Ben right on directly with me, and that is due to the tremendous, how shall I call it, commotion in Russia, Crimea, Ukraine, uh, I'm going to be picking the brain of Ben Frank because he spent a considerable amount of time there dealing with the Jewish diaspora as it shows up in those areas. In fact, my own family uh, ancestors are from the Kiev area. So it's been of some real interest to me what's going on. And uh, so this will be a chance for us to get very much updated from Ben's point of view about what it is going on there. Ben, are you with us? You betcha, and that was a wonderful, actually, introduction. But I must say the story you told about Tibetans, you know, uh, fleeing Tibet and going to India, uh, there's a similar story told about, you know, in World War One, uh, World War Two, that is, when the Japanese uh, bombed, uh, you know, Asian countries at the beginning of World War Two, uh, they bombed uh, Burma and they invaded Burma, and uh, many, many Burmese and the Jewish community fled, and they fled to India, and India also at that time welcomed them. And, and part of the journey, which I described in the, the Scattered Tribe, Mitchell, uh, really was about climbing into the forests and getting escaping from Burma. So, you know, history repeats itself over and over again, yeah. and you were right to to hit on that uh fleeing countries and, and 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 seeking asylum and seeking escape and uh safety. Yeah. So that's a thing. And safety, sure. And, he, and even today you mentioned Ukraine and and Russia. Already I heard reports uh uh from Polish journalists that there are a number of Ukrainians uh who are are leaving Ukraine uh, because of the instability in the Poland. country. Yeah. Yeah, yeah going to You Poland. know, why don't we pick up from because it is so of the moment, and of course yeah. I want to hear about the historical um, aspect of the diaspora, the Jewish diaspora, right. and any others right. you'd like to reference. Uh, would you please give us your take, Ben, having spent a considerable amount of time there in that region, uh, with what is going on, from your opinion, with uh, Russia, Ukraine, Crimea? Well, I, I think we can, at this point, we know exactly where we are now. Uh, Russia has grabbed uh, the Crimea, took it over. It's already Russification. Um, they they own it. They inhabit it. Uh, they rule it. Uh, so that's fact number one. Uh, fact number two is at this point, and that's what the tenseness is all about, they have uh, maybe twenty, thirty thousand troops massed along the eastern Ukrainian border. 
uh, and that creates uh, tension. Um, Kiev is the capital of Ukraine. Uh, people there are worried about what I've always called, you know, the Russian bear. You know, beware the Russian bear. And so we're sitting in a situation which today um, is very tense. And just this afternoon, uh, our president warned, uh, you know, them, uh, you know, if you continue this, uh, you're only going to suffer more. Uh, I don't think we're going to go to war over this. I think that's where we are now. I think it's going to be maybe an economic war. Um, nobody can predict what the Russians will do on that border. Okay, let's let's, let's 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 kind of um, detach from our conventional news media that has a tendency to slant everything from a certain kind of perspective, and let's look at okay. this a little bit more historically. So we we create a context because it's really easy to badmouth the Russians, the Big Bear. Putin, KGB, you know, and and play good guy, bad guy. And I really think it's a good deal more complex than that. And I really want our audience to be able to kind of appreciate the the more nuanced perspective because I really think that Uh, we all deserve that. Of course it's, it's complex. But the history also goes back a long, long way. Now... Let, let's take the what history. What is part. the history? What is the history of the relationship between Russia and Crimea and Russia and Ukraine and Ukraine and Crimea as you know it to be? Wow. Okay, let's start this way. Because without Russia that, we, we're, we don't have anything. Russia began in the Ukraine. There's no question about that. The early history of Russia began in Ukraine, in the Kiev area, etc. So Ukraine. You mean, what you really mean is that the 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 province of Ukraine is really historically the oldest of the entire landmass that became known later, many years later, as the USSR as Soviet Union. It really uh, goes back to Ukraine. Yeah. Yeah, but but they are. It, it was part of Russia for much of the history, including up to World War One. There were attempts, for sure, for the Ukrainians all through history to be an independent country. Whether they were or not, a lot depended on how Russia ruled them or was able to keep them in check. Now, in World War One. Ukraine really sought to be an independent country, but we know the results of, of uh, you know, the, the Bolshevik Revolution, the Communist Revolution, which took over the Ukraine and made it part of what you called exactly the USSR, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. Now, that's the history with Ukraine, okay? And Crimea um, was actually part of Russia. There's no question about that. But, and this is what uh, what I refer to. Oh, we lost Ben just temporarily. I'll be back with us in a moment, so stay tuned. You're listening to A Better World with Mitchell J. Rabin. We're on every Wednesday at 6 p.m. 
I'm sure he'll be calling back in in a moment. And our website, www.abetterworld.tv. And we're spending today's show speaking with journalist and travel writer Ben Frank, who wrote a book called The Scattered Tribe, Traveling the Diaspora from Cuba to India to Tahiti and beyond. And uh, right now, because he spent a good amount of time in Ukraine, I'm asking him uh, to describe the historical context in which the current situation has arisen. So, Ben, Hi. welcome back. Please continue yeah, sorry on. Sorry we got cut off there. Uh, basically, so we have, we have Ukraine and Crimea definitely historically part of Russia. However, Ukrainians, Ukrainians are different than Russians. It's a different ethnic group. It's a different group of people, different language, etc. Now we have a situation in 1954. Russia gives back the Crimea to Ukraine. In 1954, Ukraine becomes part of uh, Crimea becomes part of Ukraine, and that's important. Again, you said give back. So that means it once once was part of Ukraine. It was part of Russia. It was definitely Crimea. But you was said part Russia, Russia. But you said Russia gave yeah, back, gave it back Crimea to Ukraine. Originally, they were separate areas, separate nations. You know, they lived differently depending on how much the Russians wanted to rule them. And a lot of times, they were independent. I mean, it's a different. It's a different language. It's a different way of living, etc. They're yes, they're related, but they're not uh you know, they're not what they what are, precipitated they are Russia they what precipitated Russia returning Crimea right. politically we, to Ukraine. We, there are two given reasons for that. One is Khrushchev did it. Khrushchev was the, the uh man in power at the time. I don't think in his mind or anybody's mind, did they ever believe that communism or the Soviet Union would fall? So it was give it back to the Ukraine, and you can have it. I say give back. It was a give back. It wasn't uh, a, a thing that just happened like that. Once you become part of a country, then what happened? In 1994, communism fell, and the United States, and I believe Britain and Russia, agreed to recognize the boundaries of Ukraine. So Crimea is part of the Ukraine now. And then when I mentioned earlier, uh, which you, you asked me about, uh, I, you can't just walk in and take over a country. I mean, it's not, it's not really done. That's my opinion. So I'm not bad-mouthing the Russians. I'm just saying what's, you know, what's fact and what's, what's here on the, um, on, in front of us. Also, by Why don't the way, we say what's what's actually international law? Well, it's not a question claim, simply of protocol. Claim, it's a question of claims, international law. The West claims that what they did in Crimea is against international law. Now they claim it isn't against international law. So that's why we have disputes. That's why we have a dispute now. By the way, uh, when I mentioned the Russian bear. I mean, Russia has always wanted, always wanted to get the warm water port to get out to the Mediterranean. That's geopolitical throughout its history. So we know that 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 was an emphasis. So in a way, it makes sense for them 
to, okay, I won't use the word grab the Crimea, although that's what really happened, but they want to ensure that they have that Crimea base, Sevastopol, and they have access to the Black Sea. And that's what it's all about. Uh, on the other hand, the West, and, and certainly many say, you can't just walk in and just take over a country like that. Okay, so, let's, let's back up a little bit here. Uh, before go we go painting things black, uh, uh, the whole world said legally, not to mention ethically or morally, that the United States had no business entering Iraq. And that there was, was no argument. basis for it. There was no right. such thing as we do not accept the idea um, as a collective, as a as an um, international community of preemptive strikes. And in fact, we also broke into Afghanistan. Now, I know there's a tremendous rationale for starting a war in a country in search of one man who claimed to have had something to do with an attack on the United States, never proven in a court of law, but certainly there was some reasonable suspicion about it. An entire country, an ancient country at that, was under military attack by us, all wholly justified, and then switch over to Iraq. Both countries, interestingly, have many interesting natural resources, oil, or one is the um, sort of the gateway to oil, and it's good for transportation. And it has another very lauded resource called poppy seeds. So it's interesting that this administration is very quick to point the finger at Putin for breaking international law when the United States did same several times over in its recent history, not to mention even torture. So uh, I you know have to set I, the context, Ben, and I'd like to hear what you have to say. Wow. I mean, I, I, I think, but there's no question that all this um, gets involved in history and in injustices and politics. But I happen to have heard uh, President Obama's speech today, and, and when you mentioned this, and he made a point, and I don't have the exact words in front of me, but he brought up the Iraq uh, situation, uh, which we can, you know, debate here for weeks, and, you know, you know what that, that will do. And he said, basically, he even voted against the war, but he went on to say that we had, and this is the president's voice, uh, we had no interest in taking over Iraq and making it part of our country. Uh, we are winding down the war there. We wanted Iraq to be an independent country, etc. Now, that's what he Iraq said. was an independent. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. No, he, Iraq he was an independent, sovereign country. Well, he said even after the war, we wanted to be an independent country, and that's what it is today. Now, here's the thing. We're, we're, this is involving geopolitics, national self-interest. It's involving a history that goes back hundreds of years. And it also 
it's coming on the heels of, you know, people are referring to all this, obviously, as those of us who lived through it, I I didn't exactly, but, you know, uh, a certain dictator in Germany and grabbing place by place by place. So are those people who get a little nervous when somebody comes in and takes over the country? Now, I think at this point what's going to happen is that Crimea, the Russians have Crimea, they will hold on to it, it will become part of Russia. If we can, and I think that's why cool heads really have to, um, you know, cool heads have to be involved in all Predominate. Um, predominate, right. We can get at least, what do they call that now, the fast track or the back track or whatever it's called, uh, get back to it. But I think we're we're now, um, and by the way, Russia hasn't been innocent in all this either. You know, they took over parts of Georgia. They've had signs on Moldova. This is all part going back hundreds of years. So we're not dealing here with, uh, you know, something that all of a sudden just comes up in the news. Um, and Putin has his own philosophy on which way Russia goes. Uh, there have been all kinds of reports and, you know, and he's expressed. But this is all hearsay. This is all. I, I really want to, really, really want to steer us clear from the standard reportage that we no, no, get in the U.S. media. Wait a minute. But it is true that he has a different view of what happened in 1991 when communism fell. They have quotes on that. And he, he after all, is the, the president, the leader of Russia. And, and maybe uh, the word is. You know, revanchism, they want to turn back. To, that's not the first country in the world in history to do that. I'm not talking, I'm not going back hundreds of years, but look at the French and the Germans, how they fought over Alsace-Lorraine for three three, uh, three wars. Uh, basically, I mean, you know, fought three different wars, the Franco-Prussian War, World War One, World War Two, all to change boundaries, Right. So we're trying to avoid that situation, but you know neither you know you can't say that they've been. Um, despite what the media let's, says, let's look we have at facts I, on let, the ground. Since we we have some facts on the ground, and a lot of it is fear-based opinion bandying about. That's what I really see. But uh, I want to just make another point here, and please understand, I am not. An apologist for anybody. That's not where I'm coming from with this no, conversation. No, I, I, I know that. And I'm not making anybody right or wrong, but I want to deal with facts. And one of the facts of recent history is that the what now looks like the former president of Ukraine was democratically elected. He was, by all appearances, highly corrupt. He was a bad leader. He was not popular. And there were demonstrations in Kiev, in the main place there, to uproot him. And there was an agreement, and please correct me if I missed something here, but there was an agreement between the demonstrators and his administration to push up the date for new elections, which would truncate, potentially, 
his presidency, and he was ready and willing to do it. He accepted those terms because he knew the dissatisfaction of his people, even if he were democratically elected. But no less, McCain was over there fighting, you know, upholding the people opposing him, and when he got scared out by some extreme elements, and it would be an interesting discussion to find out who those extreme elements are, and they don't seem to have been Ukrainians, actually, but when he was, he fled for fear of his life, there was installed through these extremists a new president, which the United States decided to back in short, Ben. It was a coup d'etat, and the United States administration, instead of backing the democratically elected president, instead backed the newly installed unelected leader. Well, I mean, that's, that's your interpretation of it. No, no, and, it's not my know, interpretation. Way, not thinking, no, 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 it's I'm not my interpretation. Saying, I heard I'm this is not my interpretation. This I'm has been laid that, out by a historian of Russian history who teaches at NYU, I think his name was Steve Cohen. I've heard him discuss this on the air on several occasions, stating okay. I virtually I was quoting him. And, and by the way, I'm, I'm, I, I really mean this. There are obviously two sides to this whole question. And that's an interpretation of some people. It's not exactly my interpretation, but hey, listen. What is your right interpretation? Now, well, I, I think that the, the, the uh, from what I can observe and from what I can see and from what I, I felt in talking to people, I think that those people just got fed up with this president that you're talking about. And hey, we've had revolutions in this world and they just felt enough with this guy, and that was the end of it. Now, now you could be right or that, you could be wrong. You can't, but Ben, but wait a minute. I, I, wait I wait just need to interrupt you for a moment. I have to, right. excuse me. Ben, hold on a moment, please. Okay. Please. This, either you have a rule of law or you do not. If we decide that we do not have a rule of law, then mayhem can continue and we will condone it. But if we agree that we have states that and countries nations that run by rule of law we must uh, we must adhere to the law i don't think he would have left if he knew he could hold power without killing more people etc i i think it got down to the point where he knew he had to leave um so well that is we what's called an interpretation <laughs> well, and you have every right to it but it's okay. just an interpretation okay. yeah Okay. That's okay. But that's sure. okay. I mean, it's a lively discussion, and I'm sure uh, sure listeners will decide, you know, which side. For themselves. Which side. But, you know, what they see of it. The point is right now we're faced with uh, a, a situation that hopefully will not get worse. Let's put it that way. We have certain mm. basic facts now, and hopefully it won't get worse. Well, let's and look at it this. Here. Since your work has for so long been looking at the Jewish diaspora, what do you feel are the ramifications and implications for, of uh, all of this 
rather extreme upset and commotion and activity in that area of the world for the Jewish diaspora there. Well, I mean, right now we know that, I mean, obviously the Jewish community is is caught in the middle, certainly definitely in the Ukraine. Um, I, in Russia, you know, Russia is, uh, there's a large Jewish community. I think in the Ukraine now there may be 60, 70. Some people say 100,000, 300,000 Jews living there. Um, they, there's a lot of them say, and again, I, I don't have the exact figures, but, you know, we're, we're here, we're Ukrainians, uh, we're going to stand by uh, Ukrainians. I'm sure a lot of the um, Russian Jews in, in um, the ethnic Russian Jews in Crimea felt they wanted to be with Russia, especially the older people. Uh, and I'm sure that in Russia themselves, there's uh, many who think Russia is right and many who think Russia is wrong. So we have to just hope that uh, the communities will be safe and sound. And there are uh, Jewish organizations which are helping out. Uh, the JDC is one of them, uh, you know, helping. Uh, I understand in some places in the Ukraine they've upgraded their security. Listen, this is not easy. You know, you're living in a country now which could be on the verge of war. So you have to be very, you know, careful and uh, be, be uh, you know, cognizant of what's going on around you. As far as the, the Jewish communities around the world, uh, you know, Many of them are, are really in good shape today, and especially in, if I didn't say that, the democracy, especially in the West. And Russia, too, by the way, they live very uh, well and very comfortably. And the big thing about Russia is they can leave, travel to Israel, go back and forth. Um, and so uh, they're part of the community, and they, they've expressed the hope that just cool heads prevail. Right. We are speaking with Ben Frank, the author of The Scattered Tribe, Traveling the Diaspora from Cuba to India to Tahiti and beyond. Ben is a well-known travel writer and author and journalist who has traveled to some rather remote areas of the world and interviewing... I have How many? 89 countries. 89, I counted them one day. And traveling around and meeting uh, Jews in places that you never thought you would find a Jew. Tell us about what was it like to go to Tahiti, for instance. How did you find it? Was there a whole community, or was it just three That's families, or what? People always ask me, you know, they ask me, uh, is there a synagogue in Tahiti? And I say, yes, actually, there are about 250 Jews in Tahiti, um, and they most of them are, uh, actually, probably nearly all of them are from France, because, you know, Tahiti's a French, uh, well, French protectorate or whatever, and it's part of yeah. France. So if you go to Tahiti, you're a French citizen, you have all the rights and privileges of a French citizen living in, you know, your country. So many of the people there... Um, just decided, well, why would anyone want to go to an island, you know? Well, there are a lot of people, Mitchell, who just don't want to live, you know, in what they call the rat race of the big cities, you know, that type of thing, and they want a beautiful island, and that's what happened. They went to Tahiti, and um, many of them are 
doctors. Many of the Jews there are engaged in all your women um, listeners out there would love it. Uh, Tahitian pearls, you know, the famous black pearls come from that area. Mm. So it's really but, a beautiful uh, but place. in terms of in terms of ethnicity, they're French, which suggests that they're most likely Ashkenazi, which traces no, back. No, interesting. People are, these people are Sephardic Jews. That's the interesting oh. part of this. Yeah, what happened oh, okay. was, what happened was, you know, at the end of World War Two, uh, France was always, you know, basically Ashkenazic Jews. But then you yeah. had, you know, in the sixties, Jews leaving the Arab countries in North Africa, and they were mostly yeah. Sephardic Jews. So okay. you had about an immigration of a couple. And they and they went to France. They went to France. And especially the Algerian Jews, because they were French citizens. Algeria sure. was part of France until it became sure. independent. So they became French citizens, and they really revitalized the community. So that many of the people who were on Tahiti were really, um, how should I put it, descendants of French Jews in Algeria, you know, Algerian Jews. Oh, or interesting. Who went to France and then went there. Actually, France. And this, I, I wrote about this in the Scattered Tribe. Actually, France was one of the few countries in recent Jewish history which changed from being Ashkenazic, you know, European, German, Russian, you know, that type of thing, to Sephardic Jews um, oh. who emanate from Spain. So it's you mean in terms of uh, majority. Yeah, the Sephardic Jews became a majority in France, revitalized the community. Uh, yes. So you have a real majority there. Um, and then, of course, go ahead. So, so it's uh, a wonderful place, Tahiti. And wherever I went, so I went to Tahiti, Burma. So in Tahiti, then, in Tahiti, mm-hmm. uh, has there been intermarriage then with the native Tahitian people? Yeah, there is that. Or to what extent? Uh, there is that. To what extent? But there are mixed marriages. I don't think it's the majority, but there are mixed marriages. But the interesting thing is, the synagogue is very orthodox in the synagogue. In other words, there's separation, men and women. They follow orthodox law in the ritual, in the prayers. So mm-hmm. you have that. Um, they import kosher food. You know, they fly it in from Los Angeles. Or God, Australia. I don't want to think about what that would cost. <laughs> the only <laughs> that, one of the problems in the supermarkets, and, and that's it's a nice wild. community. It's like it's like it's like well they say Tahiti's paradise but it's really Bora Bora or other islands you know around Well there. what's interesting is that the Polynesian cultures if I'm not mistaken rely tremendously on pork for their protein source and part of uh, a big portion of their uh, culinary appetite so it's kind of curious. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that you know, an Orthodox I mean, you know, there are a lot there. of people, and I'm sure that the Haitian Jews are like that. There are a lot of people who, you know, uh, try to do what they feel is right. Uh, all I know is that I don't know. I didn't, you know, I didn't check it out what they eat outside. But all I know is, boy, in the synagogue, they follow strict or Orthodox uh, procedures. Spartic, Spartic, Orthodox. Yes. And yes. they try to give their their very few bar mitzvahs or anything like that. It's a small community, um, so and, and are they you know, well embraced by the local community? 
Oh yeah, there's no problem there. There's uh-huh. no problem there. Uh-huh. There are places what? in the world where there are no, you know, there's no. I mean, I, very few places, but there are places where there's no anti-Semitism. India well, certainly Well, tell us won. about, about uh, when in your journeys across the world in pursuit of, you know, the diaspora and in writing this book, what were some of the more striking um, experiences you had to share with well, our audience? Um, well, huh. I had an interesting one. In fact, getting back to to Russia and the Ukraine. I mean, without getting mm-hmm. into the politics here again, but mm-hmm. getting back there, I had great. I, you know, Clara's journey is about a young girl who leaves her family in Odessa and goes across Siberia in in World War One. Actually, the Russian Civil War. So I I knew that boy. If I was going to write this novel, Clara's journey, I had to travel all across. Siberia. I mean, how could you write about it without knowing where she went? So yes. I ran. I rode across um, Siberia on uh, part of the Trans-Siberian. I flew part of the way, you know, it's 6,000 miles and takes six days. And, mm-hmm. and one of the interesting things happened was that, you know, on, uh, on the Russian train, especially in Siberia, you have to share your food, you know, and uh, uh-huh. it's custom. So uh, my wife and I, we only had sandwiches. We got on in a Khabarovsk, and next to us was an American professor billeted with a Russian general, and I called him a general. I had medals, you know, all over, and we invited them in. Well, we only had sandwiches, but, man, they had everything. They had... Caviar, um, herring. <laughs> no, they had caviar, they had black bread, they had chavra, and they had... Yeah. So... It was a really a good. That was an interesting experience. Um, yeah. I had an interesting experience in Vietnam. I went to Vietnam, um, and I went into the Chabad Center. You know, Chabad is everywhere today. Mm-hmm. If, uh, I actually just wrote an article about if you're traveling, and I wrote, I wrote about that in the scattered tribe. I wrote, if you're traveling and you happen to be outside the country on. Um, uh, business or you're traveling and Passover is coming, you know, in a few weeks, um, you can always find a Chabad center and you can have uh, participate in the Seder there. Um, mm-hmm. And I walked into Vietnam in Saigon or Ho Chi Minh City now, and I walked in and I was looking for Vietnamese Jews, and all, all I could see was, you know, uh, expats, Americans, French. And I said to myself, well, and I asked them, what are they doing? And they said, they're all in business here in Vietnam. And guess what business, Mitchell? They're in the schmata business, you know, driving. Ah. <laughs> so that was a nice experience. Right. So I've Shouldn't had those all over it. the world. Yeah. And that's what a travel book is about, a narrative, you know. That's why I wrote The Scattered Tribe. I had written guides, mm-hmm. by the way. And I'd re- I wrote uh, Travel Guide to Jewish Russia and Ukraine. I wrote one in South America, and I wanted to write a travel narrative, so that's why I wrote The Scattered Tribe. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. So where were you? I mean, no one typically would think of Jews in Tahiti, for instance. Um, right. Certainly they would know of Jews in India or Cuba uh, and uh, India, even, for lots of reasons. Uh, could you tell us about what is it 
that brought Jews to these, can we fairly say, more remote locations that are not ordinarily associated well, with Jewish life? Well, yeah, India, Jews have been living there for 2,000 years. We know that. Um, Listen, there's an lost. entire perspective uh, with yeah, they, some they historical and linguistic. Can I just finish the sentence? Sure. Uh, the historical and linguistic evidence has some suggestion that Abraham may have been from Kashmir. So you're, I'm, I'm just corroborating your point that in that Jews have been in India for a long, long time. Right. Interesting. I never heard that one, but that's good. I'm glad yeah. you learn every day. You learn something. Especially, right. I, I didn't say it's Jewish true. History. I said huh? that it's a. It's. I didn't say it's true as a fact. I'm saying that ah. it is an interpretation of some information that is striking because there are he- Hebrew inscriptions on a t- on temples in Kashmir that suggest a very old relationship between Hebrew and Sanskrit and Hebrew and the Indian culture. But please you know what? I'm um, interested there was in a your fellow, I, I, You know, you hit on something which is really fascinating, because there was a fellow in the 12th, he was a rabbi actually, called Benjamin of Tudela from Spain. Mm-hmm. And in, in many ways, I, when I lived in New York, I used to consider myself Benjamin of New York, because he traveled the whole <laughs> Jewish world in the 12th century. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, and he even mentions that there are Jews in India and Jews in China. And there, even today, there's very few places where, you know, Jews don't live or work or travel to. Um, I, I guess in Algeria, for example, which I mentioned before, there's no, I don't think there are any Jews left there anymore. Maybe one or two. None in Algeria? Really? No. no, no. Morocco, yes, but wow. none in Algeria. But, well, but of course, still, there's an enormous population of Jews in South Africa. That there was, yes, be. and there are many left, uh, but there's still a large community there. I was in Israel this summer for the Maccabi Games, and they sent a um, very large con- uh, contingent from South Africa. So the diaspora is big, you know, and I haven't even covered all of it. It's just that... You know, I feel I've covered a lot, at least the major centers. Um, but then again, it's narrowing down because the, the real two large centers of Jewish population today are United States and Israel. And others, um, they're kind of shrinking. You know what I mean? We're losing population in those countries. Uh, people mm-hmm. are either coming to the United States or they're coming to to Israel or You'd be surprised one of the largest, fastest-growing Jewish communities in the world is in Germany, for example, because you get a lot of Russian Jews moving to Germany. Uh, especially now, in the last what did you notice in terms of the, uh, um, you could say, the uh, cultural influence on the Jews in places like, since we've discussed Tahiti or Vietnam or in China? I know a family... Um, quite well that uh, they were Russian Jews born, but during World War uh, was it actually I think it was during World War One the family uprooted to Harbin in China yeah. because the railroad went there, and that yep. was one of the they could either go east or west, and some Jews went east 
and ended up in that became a a harbinger. Harbin became a harbinger for Jews. I I've been to Harbin, and but yeah. I, mean, I want to tell you something. And forgive me, but you've just hit on the whole nature of the whole story of Clara's journey because mm-hmm. Clara in the, in the real life, and this is based on a family story, ended up in Harbin. So I had to go there. Harbin, by the way, in nineteen. I guess 18 to the early 20s was actually a Russian city. You know, it was part of it was Manchuria, but it oh, was part of China. Yeah. And the Russians built this railway that, you know, um, the Chinese railway that went right into Harbin. And they got a deal from the Chinese. The Russians did that. Hey, they, they had land on each side of the railway. But in Harbin, they actually ran the city. Of course, when the Bolshevik Revolution came, um, many Jews fled, you know, Russia. They couldn't go west, like the story Clara and Clara's journey. She had to go east, so they went east to um, to Harbin, and then would, you know, go to China and then emigrate to Australia or to the United States. Now, the same thing happened after World War Two, because a lot of people fled across Russia and then, you know, went to Shanghai. There was a very good Jewish community in Shanghai during World War II. And so they also found refuge there. So when you mentioned that family, I mean, uh, that's my story in so-called in the book, Clara's Journey. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Very interesting. Yep. So, so listen, the whole world is so interesting when it comes to Jewish subjects and, and history and life in those countries and return now Jews are going back to some places. Uh, they're Jews in Spain, and look, they were exiled, what, 500 years ago, right? Told not to yeah. come back. Now they, Spain would give you citizenship, Sephardic Jews citizenship, if you can prove at certain points so that you were part of Spain and you well, were. Well, sure. There's a cycle to all things, as we know, Ben. But I'm, I'm interested in this question, in our... Uh, Last minutes here. I'd really love to hear what you have to say. Uh, there is this notion of the purity of uh, Jewish ritual in the synagogue and the celebration of the Sabbath, etc., the holidays. And I'm wondering about anything you may have noticed about the cultural influence on those rituals that are so uh, dated with history are going back, you know, according to the uh, Torah, so many thousands of years. Uh, If you noticed, for instance, an influence in Vietnam on the ritual, and if so, what? If you noticed a change in Tahiti. Yeah, I can't remember exact details, I must say, but it's funny that you mentioned that. These I went to the Seder in Vietnam, and um, the rabbi asked us to go around the room and tell us what was the most the, the most significant Seder that we remember. And, and people would uh, tell about, you know, um, how they had a Seder at home, um, and uh, one one lady was uh, from Morocco, told about different customs uh, of, of welcoming Elijah the prophet, you know, and different customs that they had as uh, mm. Sephardic Jews. And um, 
I remember we started out this conversation, Mitchell. I remember telling him that I had attended a Passover Seder in Odessa, which, by the way, mm-hmm. is Ukraine. Um, mm-hmm. And the rabbi said, well, I'm, I'm sure you won't forget this Passover Seder in Vietnam. And I said, I don't think I will either. You know, <laughs> so, yeah, you notice sure. all the people have different customs and all that, but I think the basic Jewish service, is the same if you go on Sabbath, Shabbat, you know. I went in England, the same synagogue that the Israeli um, was, you know, circumcised. They have a record of his circumcision, etc. Uh, I mean, I've been in some really historic What places. a thing to remember. <laughs> yes, yeah, well, I hear you. I mean, I, Israeli was one of my favorites. So, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? I visited the synagogue uh, where all this, his records are kept, you know, uh and, you know, he never denied that he was a Jew and et cetera. So, you know, um, there's history over and over again. And when you travel, uh, you realize how little you know, you know. If you travel to Europe or Asia or South America, it's so little that we know of life and people in those countries. So that's why I encourage people to travel. And I never tell people where to go. You know, people yes. go where they want to go. People tell me where to go all the time, but that's another story. <laughs> now you're a good interviewer. So. Well, thank anyway, you, no. friend. I really appreciate your being on the show today and thank sharing you. with us some of your experiences and thoughts. And, you know, it's very rich. It's very rich and, and very interesting just to even think of the Jewish diaspora being as uh, dispersed as it really is. You know, it's far it wider than people would ordinarily imagine. Yeah, it's very enriching. It really is. It, it's an it really enriching is. experience, well, and I'm glad I did it. And, yes, um, indeed. It's very, very wonderful. Thank you, really, for okay. sharing it with us. We really okay, appreciate it. Do you have a website a that people could go visit or any Take contact information in case yeah, people want to inquire uh, further? Yeah, uh, all my books are on, you know, Amazon.com. Um, okay. And well, we have them listed on our website at this point. Yeah. And newsletter I as well. That. Yep. And sure. They can, wherever books are sold, and you know, um, they have they can Google me, you know, that kind of thing, and they can sure. see things. So, I, wherever you know they they want to read the books, that's fine, and uh, I would enjoy hearing from you. Very good. Ben Frank, thanks again for being a guest on A Better World with me today. Okay, good luck. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye now. This is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World. Wow, we (laughs) are so interesting to travel the world with Ben Frank and uh, stick our nose into all sorts of corners out there that uh, we never thought that Jews would live necessarily, but that shows perhaps more of my or our uh, lack of imagination, <laughs> but uh, I know I've heard some wonderful stories, and I've met Jews in India for sure, both in India and in New York, as one thing, and I've met uh, Chinese Jews as well. Japanese, I'm not sure, but any event, uh, I'm much more for unity than I am for anything else, but uh, diversity in unity, you could say. But I do want to circle back to something that Ben and I were talking about, and just to make clear uh, that, uh, to me, aggression is aggression. And um, 
justifying it for economic, political, or historical reasons is just that, a justification and pure actions that are authentic in nature, serving the common good, don't need justification. So when you have to explain what it is you're doing, uh, it already shows there's something that's up. But I also do think that it's curious that the United States uh, current administration and the prior ones feel they have some ground of moral authority after abrogating, breaching international law over and over again at its own convenience. And this I just find horribly disturbing that somehow there is an overall global appearance, and it's just that, an appearance. It's essentially a propaganda machine that positions the U.S. as the moral authority when in fact the United States of America's government, not its people, but the government, has done such a long history of immoral activities, unethical activities, and illegal activities, bolstering, supporting, advocating for dictators and tyrants all over the world, curiously including Saddam Hussein for many, many years, supplying him with military weaponry against oftentimes Iran, uh, even with a CIA salary, as it came to be understood. So the hypocrisy, we just have to make note of it. It is just rampant. And it goes all the way around over and over. And most people simply don't know much of history. And nor am I an historian. I pay as close attention as I can to events of the day and to understand their historical antecedents, which I feel is really, uh, you know, um, behooves us all and we are really obliged to do so we understand world events today in context for some people it's uh you know there could be some level of retribution or of undoing a past injustice to a given community or group of people or ethnicity for some people they use the word karma that there is a karmic a visitation from wrongs done a people long ago. In fact, in an interview I conducted with a Tibetan Buddhist monk, the head of a monastery, uh, Geshe Yantan, some years ago, at the Tibet House, when we were talking, of course, among other things, about the Chinese invasion of Tibet back in the 50s. And while our hearts bleed for the Tibetan people and the, the diminution of the Tibetan culture, ways of life, religion, I don't care for using that word much, but uh, the spirituality embedded in Tibetan Buddhist thought, psychology, 
uh, as Robert Thurman said on this show, uh, science, Tibetan Buddhist science, really, really true. Certainly psychology. Uh, We have to ask ourselves, according to their own teaching, including that of the nature of karma, it stands completely to reason that at some point earlier in the cycle of human history between the Chinese and the Tibetans, the Tibetans did something horribly wrong to China, perhaps militarily aggressive or something of that sort. And what happened in the 50s was a a karmic return of those ills. And I had to, in all honesty, bring this up to the Tibetan um, head of that monastery and say, how could it be? And he said, yes, you're actually very right. We don't know what those incidents were. We don't know that consciously, but it only stands to reason, as you said, that just as the Chinese are being aggressive today to the Tibetans, so the Tibetans would have been similarly um, kind of uh, oriented uh, back then, no pun intended, uh, to the Chinese, you know, similarly aggressive, I should say. So it's all very interesting. It's way better not to point the finger out, but in, take a look, and then make peace between the parties. And as we know, we live in a world of competition. We live in a world of dog-eat-dog and man-eats-man. And these are the lower functions of our human nature. Those are our, it's not even fair, as I've said before, to call it our animal nature. Because animals oftentimes don't act the way humans do. They're not programmed to do the things we do of torture and sadism and masochism and the like. I mean, just it's not in the lexicon. But humans, oh yes. Almost anything goes. So if you really want to create a world of peace, if you really want to help us graduate to the next level, so to speak, you will take into consideration the benefits that accrue from doing various kinds of spiritual practices and, I will say, psychotherapeutic practices as well. In other words, learning to attain a peaceful state of mind through something like meditation, which has been done for thousands of years in China, in Tibet, in India, in Burma, everywhere on the planet has been a form of meditation, of prayer, of asking for help from higher level intelligences or energies. Mm-hmm. That's right. Some kind of physical meditative, contemplative practice such as Tai Chi Chuan or Qigong or yoga or any number of others from different parts of the world. You know, very interesting indigenous practices shaking as in Indonesia and different parts of Africa. Really interesting, all designed to create balance between the two hemispheres of the brain to quiet down 
um, aggression, to reduce or eliminate violent impulses and tendencies. In short, to short-circuit, really, allay the dominance of the reptilian brain, the ancient brain, and time to graduate toward the higher levels of our potential as humans, you could say, humans as gods. And in that light, I want to remind you of last week's interview with Dr. Michael Cotton uh, regarding higher brain living, uh, which is a process, a 22-session process that he has developed that uh, allows people to move from the dominance of the uh, of the frontal of the I'm sorry the reptilian brain and move into that of the prefrontal cortex, which is the place that uh, scientific observation has shown us regards relates to corresponds with brotherly love, compassion understanding, empathy, uh, sensitivity, intuition, telepathy, even clairvoyance, and the other aspects of living on the level of intention to materialization or manifestation. Very interesting and very real. And lots of science now behind it. See Dr. Richard Davidson and the tests research he has done with a hand-picked group of Tibetan monks, practitioners for a long time, hand-picked, that is, by His Holiness the Dalai Lama. But there are other examples in the research in neuroscience at this point in time which continue to reiterate and corroborate the same idea. So I really want to encourage this understanding, this broader understanding of how do we create peace. It's not, okay, you get one chip, I get another chip. Well, yeah, 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 that cooperation involves that. But if we're coming from a place of service, of wanting to work with each other in a communal, cooperative way, it'll be way easier to divide up the goodies and make sure everyone is healthy and happy. And there don't have to be grabs for land and grabs for oil and grabs for ports and grabs for resources and grabs for you name it. It's just primitive, what do you call it, uh, reptilian brain behavior. And it's awesome that in the 21st century, after we've had so many interesting cultural developments, technological developments, historical perspective. We continue to live physiologically out of this lower headset, brain set, literally. And it's time to graduate, folks, and here at A Better World, we are so interested, primarily interested, in the cultivation of human potential, and it maps out to be the use, the engagement of these higher level brain functions, 
which come with, well, it's that other 95%, and it's not even limited to that. It's an infinite in its nature. And we thereby transcend uh, genetics. We enter truly the domain of epigenetics. We uh, gain the upper hand on our legacy, our history, our ancestry, and we are launching into the new paradigm which we know we need for planetary sustainability because the this grab bag idea of what just happened, yes, uh, in Russia and Crimea, uh, but that is but one small example in my experience and knowledge of this kind of grabbing land that's been going on for thousands of years, even among the so-called civilized countries. Look at Africa just 250 years ago and 150 years ago. The French, the Dutch, the English, the Spanish, the Portuguese, dividing up Africa, dividing up Latin America, dividing up the colonies of North America, both the United States and Canada. Think about it. Going to China, taking in British taking over India, Burma. It just goes on and on. And it's time to stop it. It's time to come to a new place and a new understanding, and a new way of being on this planet that regards all life as sacred, including the tomato plant, and holding things within that sacred space so we can treat everything with the proper respect and work together as one of our highest level functions called cooperation. On that note, I want to just thank you all for listening yet again. This is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World. If you like what you hear, let others know. I mean, that's really what it comes to. Uh, If you visit our website, abetterworld.tv, you'll see an opportunity to make donations to us, even if it's a latte a month with Mitchell Rabin. Please, if you would, do so. Or spread the word. We we do A Better World promotions and... uh, We uh, involve uh, radio, video, our website, our newsletter in what is really quite a punch of promotion and people who write books, people who are uh, musicians, filmmakers, have launched themselves through us, uh, if not exclusively, along with the rest of their marketing campaign And uh, for very, very, very reasonable fees, we really help a lot of people and a lot of companies ignite and move forward with some really good promotions. So remember that, and we've uh, we've got a number of things on our website that could really interest you, including uh, now we have Dr. Michael Cotton, Uh, who has got the higher brain learning and higher uh, brain living institute, and it's beautiful stuff. I just spent some of this past weekend with him. Uh, 
at the New Life Expo, Mark Becker's Expo here in New York City, where I gave a talk and moderated a panel and uh, spent some time with Michael as well, learning more about this. I consider it to be one of those real ways that we can move forward spiritually, practically, economically, and emotionally uh, out of the lower brain into the higher. So I want to encourage you to uh, go to our website and look that over or access my radio show with him. Everything is in Radio Archive. It's for free. Go for it. We do sell our interviews on video on Amazon.com. If you just click through our website at abetterworld.tv on store, you'll see it all. On that note, thanks again for joining me on A Better World Radio every Wednesday at 6 p.m. We will be looking to expand. In fact, I'll be rejoining, it looks like, uh, Progressive Radio Network with Gary Null uh, doing a specific show on Monday evenings that um, that will focus on documentary films that are progressive in nature, socially progressive, politically, uh, spiritually, environmentally, telling the true stories of what it is that's going on so we can have a roundtable on the subject and uh, get educated through the wonderful medium, vehicle of film and cinema. So join me there. It will be starting probably in the middle of April. I'll certainly let you know, and all that info will be found at abetterworld.tv. Thanks again, and I look forward to seeing you all. Oh, one last thing. Do write to me and share your comments. MJR at abetterworld.net. MJR at abetterworld.net. I love hearing from you, and I look forward to seeing you all 